0: Land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the Betashares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment, or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show.
2: G'day. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. This is our Q and A segment. So, hello everybody, and thanks for joining today. I'm joined by Chris Bates. Uh, welcome, Chris. How's how's your week been?
1: Pete, things are going well here. Not sick, which is a um, first time in about two months. So, I'm feeling very happy, and um, you're probably hit pretty happy as well because day two in the Ashes was England's day. But um, we'll see what where it goes to from here
2: nerve-wracking times, but uh, at least they're making a show of it this time around, so fingers (laughs) crossed. Uh, So welcome to the Australian Property Podcast Q&A segment. We're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast, and today we're going to take a plain English look at some of your questions. Uh, Now, just before we kick off, a couple of uh, things. Firstly, a disclaimer. So these are just our general thoughts. It's not financial advice. Obviously, we don't know your full personal circumstances, so we always recommend you would speak to an advisor for personal advice. Uh, But Chris, let's um, go through. We've got half a dozen questions here that we've picked out. Uh, So thanks everyone for sending them in. Um, So Chris, we just get straight into
1: it. Let's do it.
2: Okay. Question firstly, then from Linda. So it's a bit of a long question. So bear with me. It's more of a uh, discussion. Uh, So many investors such as myself mistakenly listen to the RBA rhetoric of no rate rises until mid or late 2024, my error not to be repeated. So yes, we've taken on some larger loans on quality properties to renovate and sell or to renovate and hold. However, loan repayments have increased very dramatically as a result of the economic climate, unprecedented rate hikes. So yes, economic factors such as wage increases, inflationary pressures can still continue to impact. But can you cover in your podcast some strategies on how to manage during during the current climate of negativity until we get to the other side? How to make a decision on when to sell down, when to sell one quality property to pe- perhaps buy a cheaper one to keep repayments reasonable in regional markets and so on would value your discussions and thoughts. So Chris, where to start with mm. all that?
1: All right. Um... Linda, uh, we probably shouldn't say your name, but anyway, uh, Linda Montgomery. (laughs) Um, I mean, I guess the first way to think about this is in terms of you said here on quality assets. So that's the first thing that gives me a bit of comfort, right? Um, and hopefully they are great properties. Everyone's got a different definition of quality, but um, we are seeing this a lot. So we're seeing a lot of people who, um, you know, in particular investors who have got um, more debt than they can possibly refinance right now, because you can only borrow, you know, four and a half times income. They probably borrowed at six, seven, seven and a half times back in 2021. Um, cash flow is getting really tight not just their investment properties you know the interests have gone up but also their home and you know they're going their home interest rates gone from you know low twos to you know mid to high fives especially because fixed rates are coming off now as well so we're seeing a lot of investors who are in this same position Linda and I guess that the good news for you, hopefully, is you've got good assets that potentially have held their value better than other properties, and potentially right now you're finding in the last six months there's potentially even price increases in these properties. Um, not all investors are in this situation. A lot of investors have got what we consider quite poor assets, and um, you know, and there's quite significant losses on on some properties, etc. So, the first thing I think you really need to sort of figure out. Um, here is, you know, how can you get to the other side around the negativity? The most important thing here is not losing your job. Um, and, you know, and if anything, trying to increase your income. So I'd be really focused on making sure you're really across that because if that goes for any reason, um, not to say you're going to get made redundant, but, you know, the company you're at could be, you know, not doing that well, et cetera. So I would just be really job security is really important for you right now. The second thing is um, really trying to access as many buffers as you can. So you know, just being really conscious of what buffers you do have, you know, cars and other assets and shares and things like that. Really, you just want to get through this, get to the other side, I guess, um, and make sure you've got enough cash flow to, um, yeah, to, to ride it out. I mean, selling assets um, is definitely an option. Selling an asset to buy a cheaper one, I'm not sure I would do that. Um, but however, selling assets, um, you know, sometimes is a good decision if, for example, it's only really a short term play you were looking to sort of buy and sell, Um, maybe it's, a you know, the market's still favourable and maybe that just takes a lot of stress off. If you sell one property, for example, you'll release a bunch of cash, hopefully, through equity. um, And then that equity is your new buffer to get you through, um, which we've seen actually a bit as well in the last um, few weeks as well. Um, The last couple of rate rises has been a real psychological hit to the market, I feel, Um, in particular, the investors. um, And they're really questioning, do they hold on or do they potentially just get out because there's a negative cash flow versus maybe not that much growth? Do we just, you know, you know pull a pin now? So, yeah, it's a, it's a stressful time. But if you've bought good assets, it's really just getting through this time. And if, the, if the, like you said, if the conversation flips from quite negative to positive, as in we'll talk about on, um, you know, two cents, you know, inflation might be under control, right? And maybe there's now talk of no more rate increases and maybe there's talk of rate cuts and, you know, maybe borrowing capacity is going back up again you've got through it then hopefully. So, um, yeah, I guess it's a deep breath, Linda, and focus on your buffers right now.
2: I think uh, Linda's sort of asked there, uh, do you buckle down and hold during the storm or maybe revert to a different plan? I wanted to cover this question first, Chris, because it gets right to the nub of what's going on at the moment. Um, got all these factors creating demand for property, but you've got one lever being pulled against yeah. it in the other direction, being interest rates. I've got um, two... Uh, visual models for people um, difficult to convey on a podcast of course but which I find useful anyway so firstly as it relates to the economy and secondly as it relates to the housing market so I guess uh, the first visual model is to think of um, some weighing scales and there's an old sort of economic theory which talks about the economy being in equilibrium between supply and demand for goods and services Um, So I recently saw an article or a piece where somebody was saying they'd paid $46 uh, for a chicken burger and chips, which is completely crazy. And when you see things like that happen, well, people start stepping back. It doesn't make sense as a consumer. And the general idea is that these things come back into equilibrium over time. Now, in the real world, we tend to swing between overproduction and underproduction, and maybe the economy doesn't spend that much time in the equilibrium position. Now, let's translate this to the housing market. Um, Now, one of the things I've had over many, many years in the housing market, and one of the things I've realized from all the questions that people send in, there's never gonna be a time when everything is just right. Um, If you think about the Grand Prix, when you've got the, the five red lights and then they all go green. In the housing market, that never, ever happens. So now let's translate this idea of equilibrium. The demand factors at the moment, population growth is running at the highest level in history. Dwelling supply is struggling because construction firms and developers are going bust. So we're going to have an undersupply of housing. Inflation has been tearing along. So that's another good thing for property investors uh, because the debt tends to get inflated away over time. So if I think back to, you know, if you took out a mortgage 25 years ago, it might have been a 100K. Uh, Today, it feels like a much smaller amount because inflation has inflated away the value of the debt. Taxes, yes, there's been some changes to land taxes, but generally negative gearing, capital gains tax discount, that's still there. If you look at rents, I've just renewed a couple of leases in Sydney, they're up 35 or 40%. So we've had a whole 10, 12 years where there's been no meaningful increase in rents, they're booming, prices boom through the pandemic. So you've got all those factors in favour of property investors at the moment, you've got one pulling in the other direction, which is interest rates. But I can absolutely guarantee you when interest rates start coming down, whether it's uh, six months time, 12 months time, there'll be something else. If you look back through the media over 10, 12 years, there's never been a time when there's five green lights on the Grand Prix start line. There's always a problem, Banking royal Commission, Labour is going to change taxes. Um, there was, yeah. uh, well, there's the lockdowns. So there's always something. So at the moment, it's interest rates, but I'll just say there'll never be a time when everything's just lined up perfectly.
1: Yeah. And I think if, you know, the problems with the, one of their strategies here is potentially selling down what could be a quality asset and then maybe going regional, um, you're going to pay selling costs um, and you're going to pay stamp duty again. Um you're potentially going to take a more risky it might be less debt but your cash flow change might not be that much it might only be a few thousand dollars a year. and so for that few thousand dollars a year less cash flow you're going to burn all this money in transaction costs um, and to potentially save a few thousand dollars in your cash flow and so I would just um, be really hesitant on that and I would say that the capital cities are going to bounce back stronger than the regions. Um, there's a bit of uh, logic, even just today have launched this new thing where you can basically, you know, predict future listings. I haven't really gone into detail on it yet. But, you know, that's sort of suggesting that regions are going to have a much higher number of listings than the cities, for example. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be a little bit uh, tentative on that, Linda. It's all about just sort of making sure, I mean, potentially on your servicing as well, you might not have, uh, you might have had wage increases and things like that. You know, Westpac and CBA, have got this new way of refinancing with a one percent buffer versus a three percent buffer. So definitely, just get it totally across your lending and how close you are to refinancing and um, restructuring your your loans because that's what that's what manages your cash flow. So um, yeah, great question, and hopefully that was helpful.
2: Yeah, sorry for some of our long-winded points there, but it, I think it's just such a key question because it goes right to the heart of what's going on in the housing market at the moment. We've got lots of factors we've got record high population growth forecast for years into the future. Uh, So demand for housing is very high, but we've just got this one variable pulling in the other direction, which is mortgage rates. So uh, next question. So question from Kat, I'm a first home buyer. My mortgage broker is asking, do I prefer a fixed or a variable rate given the rising interest rates and a possible decline in a few years time? What are the pros and cons of this type of loan? So, Chris, a, a fixed mortgage rate, um, I guess it gives you the benefit of at least the certainty of repayments. Now, I speak with some authority here as somebody who fixed the mortgage rate in 2006 for five years and then subsequently uh, stayed in disbelief as mortgage rates continued to fall and fall and mm. fall. Um, at the time, though, uh, interest rates were going up. So it felt good to fix the mortgage rate. Um, obviously, in hindsight, I should have gone variable. Uh, which is usually, I guess, cheaper over the duration. What do you normally say to people if they ask you about the fixed versus variable question?
1: Look, I think the the default setting should be to go variable, right? Like all the evidence proves that that will do better over the longer term. But that doesn't mean you should never consider fix. I mean, in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one, when fixed rates were sub two percent, and you know, for two, three, four, five years, you know, it was crazy not to consider that. But you know, I, I've also got it wrong on fixed rates. I actually fixed in January 2020, right, um, pre-COVID, and then I fixed it sub 3%, and then they dropped to sub 2%. And, you know, I, I think so it's really hard to, to know. Um, you know, even when Donald Trump was getting back in, in uh, was it 2016 or something like that, um, fixed rates went under 4%. And I was like, wow, that looks like a good rate. Um, It turned out to be a really poor rate in the end, you know. Rates went down from then. So, You've got to be really careful because if you get it wrong on fixed rates and you fix it at a higher rate um, and rates go lower, then the banks have got you locked in. And so you get stuck on this higher rate, you know, usually for the whole term of the loan, but you can get out of it with something called a break fee. Um, And that break fee, it depends on what the current variable rate is at that point in time, how long you've got left. Um, But it can be quite significant if you've fixed for many years. Um, So you just got to be careful around the break fee. Look, we're only fixing um, some loans at the moment, and we're only really fixing for one year. Um, because when we look at the two, three, four, five year fixed rates versus what the current variable rate and the the expectations of what rates are going to go in the future, it doesn't really seem like a safe, you know, a good bet. Um, and so when we talk to clients, we might say, look, one year might be okay because, um, you know, I even fixed personally for one year about six months ago. Right. Um, so you just sort of look at the, the fixed rate. How's it compared to your variable rate? Um, how important it is for you to protect yourself if rates go up? So some people have got lots of buffers. It, even if rates went up higher than they expected, they'd be okay. Some people are running it pretty fine, especially 1st home buyers who, you know, put everything in for a deposit. Maybe just that certainty of that fixed rate for, you know, one for a couple of years is a real big piece of mind for them. Um, so it's, it, they're the real differences i mean offsets and you did make a good point here um you know offset accounts generally aren't available for fixed loans um there are some lenders that will do it though so um you know like uh, the blue color big bank would do that for example on certain loans and things like that so and some other lenders so it's not say so you can't get offset account on fixed loans there are a few out there but generally speaking no um And uh, yeah, I mean, they're the major things, just got to be aware of the break costs. With fixed loans as well, um, And uh, when you purchase or you're doing a refinance, you've got to be careful um, with something called rate lock. So what happens is, is by the time you actually agree to the fixed rate, it might be when you first purchase the property or you initiate a refinance, but by the time that loan actually settles... That fixed rate could change, right? So banks could change their, their rates overnight. We just get an email in the morning and say the new fixed rates are X, Y, Z. Um, And so if you haven't done something called rate lock, um, what happens is you get the fixed rate when that loan settles, whether it's a refinance or a purchase. And that could be different to what you thought at the start when you, um, you know, agreed to doing a fixed rate. So just be careful with um, uh, not doing rate lock. And doing rate lock, there is a fee for it, but that fee is sometimes worthwhile because you just factor it in the overall cost. So... Um, it's never a story but generally speaking I would say sit in the variable camp but then use the fixed rate at times when you think it's a good bet and you think you um, yeah it makes sense.
2: I've got one other question for you on that Chris before we move on I um, went to Leeds this week and um, uh, long story short I bought a property during the lockdowns actually when I was stuck overseas bought a place in Headingley I looked at the mortgage rate this week after I visited the property and I've apparently fixed until 2026 at 2%, which is sensational for uh, a UK mortgage. Right? I was very pleased about that, uh, which offsets my poor decision in 2006. Now, I guess looking at that, you might say there's an element of luck involved. And um, I'm supposedly an expert in these things and I've made one balls up and one good call. Is there ever a case where somebody might look to, as an each way bet, maybe uh, fix half of their mortgage and do sort of a 50-50 thing?
1: That's a very good point, Pete. Um, when we talk about things all, all day, every day, you sometimes miss things like that. Absolutely. One of the big frustrations um, I sometimes see is when someone fixes their whole loan. Um, and so you really don't need to ever fix the full loan. You don't really want, you can fix 90% of it, but you want to keep some invariable um, because then you can offset that um, loan with an offset account, you know, and whereas fixed loans generally you can't offset, so you never fix a hundred percent. But I also think you shouldn't really fix a small amount because you know it's kind of not worth it. You know, if you are going to fix, you might as well fix a decent portion to you know, um, because if you fix five percent, for example, you're just sort of locking yourself into that lender. If you did want to refinance to get a better variable rate somewhere, you might have to pay a break fee if you got it wrong. So. Um, yeah, I think it's just, you know, definitely sort of you make it. Sometimes clients make an each way bet. They say, look, I'll fix 50%, I'll keep 50% variable, or I'll fix 70 or 30, et cetera. So, absolutely. Um, but be very careful fixing 100% because you might have issues with offset accounts and, um, you know, and potentially your break fees even bigger as well if you do get it wrong.
2: If you're really not sure, so that could be the path of least regret, I suppose, because then whatever happens, you've gone 50 50, but fixing. 5 or 10% is just not going to move the needle. So Chris, let's move on to the next one. Question from Newbie Buyer. I've talked to a mortgage broker for my first property purchase. The broker said I can borrow the amount I want to borrow. So I should just talk to him again once I have found the property I like and I don't need a pre-approval. Is this normal? Um, Uh, Well, it depends on the (laughs) borrower, I guess, but uh, over to you, Chris, you're the mortgage guy.
1: Okay, there's a lot to, um, so there's two types of, uh, sorry, many types of brokers, but let's say there's two types, right? The first type of broker, which you may or may not um, have experienced, may have actually just spoke to you on the phone, said, what do you do for work? What do you earn? What's your rough savings? And then just said, yeah, roughly you can borrow a million dollars, for example. Um, no issues, right? Um, because they might have just done some rough calculations. The second type of borrower would have, uh, broker would have potentially asked you for a bunch of documents. Would have done all your credit check. Would have looked at your pay slips, Would have looked at your deposit. Looked at all your any issues with bank policy, um, and then done a full strategy and said, "No, you got no issues borrowing the amount you want." Um, and um, this is who I'd recommend getting pre-approved for these reasons, uh, and then may have then initiated a pre-approval process, etc. But it doesn't sounds like um, you've actually gone and got pre-approved. So. If you've got that second scenario where they've done all the checks around your pay and your credit and everything like that um, and they know what they're doing, then you're probably pretty safe. Like we we do that for clients, for example. The first type of broker, absolutely, it's not enough. You know, there's things that can pop up that, um, you know, could affect, you know, bank policy, where you're looking to buy, you know, et cetera. You do need a real detail analysis. Um, Do you actually need pre-approval? Legally, no. Um, Is it a good idea? Yes. I mean, the reality is if you're in the market and you're looking to purchase, there's no cost. And if you just do one every few months, it's not going to affect your credit rating. And so for just your peace of mind, just get pre-approved. Now, you're not obligated to use that bank um, and you're not obligated to use that broker even, right? So, but just having that pre-approval and then when you do purchase, um, sometimes you do need to move fast. So part of your negotiation strategy might look, I can do a four-week settlement. Um, and if you haven't got pre-approved, that might be quite stressful. But if you are pre-approved um, and you need to do a fast settlement and they end up being the right bank for you, then you would have preferred to have been pre-approved because you go through a different queue and you can get formal loan documents much faster. So um, yeah, definitely just get pre-approved. And you know, when you do purchase, you just go back to market and make sure is that the most optimal deal for you.
2: That makes perfect sense. And if you're going to make an offer on a property and particularly, if you're going to buy it at an auction, you want to be very sure that you can actually finance the purchase. Otherwise you could get yourself into a world of bother. So next question from Making Sushi: in many episodes, you've touched on the target rental tenant. Can you please address how to profile an area to understand the predominant renters in that area? Is there a report available? Or some demographic technique. So look, when I started out, not very sophisticated, my target tenant was basically young professionals because that's what we knew. So, you know, we were basically buying in Sydney and we were basically thinking, well, look these are the kind of areas that we would want to live. We know the types of property young professionals want to live in. So there was it wasn't much more sophisticated than that. I guess if you're buying in suburbia, your target Rental tenant would probably be either young families or young professionals. Generally speaking, I prefer anyway to look at um, either gentrifying or aspirational areas and therefore that type of tenant. But, Chris, how about um, how would you go about profiling a suburb or an area?
1: Look, I think, I mean, figuring out who wants to rent um, the type of properties you want to buy. I mean, if you can get on the ground, right, go to a rental inspections, I would say nothing beats on the ground research and speaking to property managers and, um, and you know, really trying to understand that market. But the target rental tenant, I mean, this is one of the challenges when you go for um, cheaper investment properties, right? So when I say like two, three, four hundred thousand, it might be regions, it might be outer rings, it might be, um, you know, apartments in, you know, outer rings as well. And just due to, you know, socioeconomics and, you know, different income levels and, um, you know, different backgrounds, um, some areas have got, you know, different types of tenants, right, that may have, you know, very secure employment and some areas may not have much employment, right? And so I think you just got to be really careful when you are investing. One of the problems I see when clients go down a quantity strategy and buy lots of, um, you know, buy seven properties rather than one or two, um, the, the issue with tenants does rise up, you know, and so actually getting a tenant, increasing rents is really hard because they can't afford to um, pay those increases. And then you have issues with um, turnover of tenants and, you know, potentially tenant arrears, uh, uh, rental arrears, et cetera. When you get into the more the affluent area, people are very protective of their rental history, right? Because they know how competitive it is. And the last thing they want to do is stuff up their rental history because they know they're going to want to rent somewhere in six months time. It's going to be really difficult, etc. So I would say that's the issue with, um, you know, buying different properties and different tenants. Ideally though, um, you know, it's not so much the tenant. You, I mean, as long as you can, it doesn't really matter who you rent it is to, whether it's a couple, whether it's a family, et cetera. Um, as long as they've got it secure employment and they're going to keep paying on time and they care about their rental history, then you probably should be fine. Ultimately, the price of a property is not based on who wants to rent it. And so a big mistake investors make is they think I'd want to rent this property or who would it rent to? Great property is easy to rent. Very low vacancy rates. You'll never have a problem finding a tenant. Um, And that's just the reality. Rent, you know, that's just the way we've got a rental shortage. What you really want to do is when you think about properties, who wants to buy it? What are they earning? What can they afford? Have they got other money? You know, because the property is priced not on who wants to rent it, who wants to buy it. And that's that's what you should always be focused on when you're investing in properties. What's going to drive its price up, not what's going to, you know drive its rent up so much because uh, it's it's not as uh, big a, shouldn't be as big a focus.
2: Perfect yes yeah. in terms of how to profile an area look, there are reports you can order big data providers do have suburb reports and they will give you things like the breakdown of the percentage of renters in the suburb uh, incomes you generally want to see a long and proven track record of income growth over 20 30 years. That's the kind of thing I would look for, much more so than uh, the type of tenant. Um, I think, as Chris said, that really, there's no replacement for actually walking the streets and getting a feel for the types of streets and the types of people that live in a suburb. A report can give you the numbers, but it just doesn't give you the feel in the same way. Often, I you know like to see suburbs that are gentrifying or improving over time. Um, I think in terms of uh, bad experiences with tenants... Um, Look, I haven't had many. I've been pretty lucky. I think the the one time we have had an issue was when the rental market was pretty soft. We got an application from two couples and, you know, the, the references weren't great, but, you know, it kind of looked okay on paper. It was, you know, there was all kinds of problems. We had parties, smashed glasses, police being called out. You know, generally speaking, you want to get people with good reference checks um secure employment tends to be good um and yeah usually young professionals um or uh, young sort of families that they tend to be the good type of tenant because they've got skin in the game really they don't want to uh, leave a property in a bad state or come away with a bad reference so um i think that's a a pretty good uh, coverage there chris i mean there are reports you can buy but um, i think they're just the first cut you really need to drill down to the local level um And real estate's a a local investment at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. And most of the places you're investing from an investor should have, you know, a high um, owner-occupier driven market, I believe. You know, what's driving the price of the properties in that suburb is everyone wants to buy it to live there. They want to buy there to raise a family. They want to upgrade. It's their their dream scenario. It's their forever home. It's their forever home suburb. Um, Because what happens is every year I feel that owner-occupier rate starts to increase because investors start to get pushed out of the market and, 1st home buyers and upgraders start buying all those properties. And and every year it's harder to rent in those areas because there's less rental properties. And there's more demand to rent in those areas because more more people can't afford to buy in the areas. And so um, from an investor's point of view, you've got less rental risk because you've got supply and demand going in your favor. Conversely, when you think about off-the-plan apartments, you know, you, a, a, they're highly driven by investors. So every time a new building comes up, a lot of it is the investors. So it's a lot of more rental stock. Uh, a lot of investors sell to other investors. And so you don't really get this scarcity of listings. Um, and you also don't get that strong demand, I feel, because uh, renters have got choice. So, yeah, it's a really important question to think about the rental dynamics. But ultimately, the best investments are actually owner, owner-occupier driven suburbs. It's
2: a good point, actually. It's an easy sort of mistake to make and think, as an investor, I have to invest in a suburb with lots of investors and lots of renters. I mean, if you take some of the examples where we've seen sort of big overbuilding places like for a while they've Docklands, for example, in Melbourne, mostly investor owned property, mostly renters, but there was too much of it and uh, there was no scarcity. So um, it's not really about... Um, high numbers of renters. what you really want. As Chris said, is people really wanting to live somewhere. And that's when people buy emotionally, that's what drives prices. Um, So next question, poor man's buyer's agent has written in and said, should we use a buyer's agent as a first time buyer with a modest budget seems to be perceived as something for the more wealthy buyer or investor. We have a slightly difficult brief with the little supply in the market and we're struggling to find something suitable. And I hope that there might be more off market opportunities. Also, for context, we have a 15% deposit. So we would so we would be paying the agent out of this. However, we also have a placement in a home guarantee scheme. So I wouldn't have to pay any more lenders mortgage insurance. So financially, it is within our means. But is it worth it? Now, look, mm. I'm a buyer's agent. So of course, of some degree of vested interest in this. Um, I guess the answer is it depends. Um, I think a buyer's agent can... Uh, certainly help in terms of uh, guiding people through the process. Now, one of the things I know statistically is that if you look at the number of mortgages written across the country, quite a high percentage of them, uh, of pre-approved mortgages lapse and don't get used. Whereas when people engage a buyer's agent, well, most of the time they will get a property bought. Um, Of course, the buyer's agent is incentivized to help you buy and buy quickly if possible. Um, but in terms of finding off-market opportunities, I'm a bit wary on that one. I think quite often buyers agents tend to give the perception that they've got an access to like an off-market database and um, all these opportunities. But quite often what they're really uh, offering is, is pre-market opportunities that haven't been listed yet, but they're just being prepared for sale. Um, so I think, look, in, in some cases it definitely can work. And if you know exactly where... And what you are buying what you could do is prepare a very specific brief and shop around for a buyer's agent who could uh, do you a reasonable price or potentially um, give you a discount for just focusing on the negotiation and due diligence part of the process um, I suppose the one you know word of warning is you know it's a very important purchase your first one and you really want ideally a buyer's agent with a few years of experience and not somebody who's been you know, just doing it for a few months because that could be potentially risky
1: yeah i do think there's two types of buyers agents and this isn't uh, like an elitist mentality right that ultimately there's ones who've been doing it five ten years they're local specialists they've you know it's really their then their passion their purpose they've got they've got a bit of a team they've you know running a small business they've got their reputation on the line um and they've really invested in themselves, right? That type of buyer's agent, there's not that many of them really around the country because they've had to be doing it five, 10 years. Then you've got this new cohort of buyer's agents. It's explosion in the number of buyer's agents in the last three years, right? Um, it's been a cool thing to become, right? And it's very easy, very low barrier to entry. Um, and they do pedal things like, I buy off market, I buy fast, I buy under market value. All of these are major warning signs in my view. And um, because the, the off-market story is a bit of a false reality, like Pete said, buying uh, fast is generally not a thing to be proud of. It's, yes, you want to buy in a reasonable time frame, but speed's not everything. The quality asset's what matters. Um, and buying under market value, that's just, a, that defies belief, really. Market The market value is what, you know, two buyer and a seller sort of meet. So if you pick the right buyer's agent, it is most likely, if it's a local specialist in those areas you want to buy, I believe they're more likely to get you access to a property than you would because the reality is a, an agent in the area who knows that buyer's agent is more likely to say, hey, this market is coming on. It's not ready for, for sale yet. I haven't done the styling. It hasn't even been cleaned, but I'll show you through because I know you've got a pre-approved buyer that you're not going to stuff me around. But they're not going to go and offer that to the whole market. So I do think access is a real big benefit. And I do think there's a negotiation benefit the speed at which they can get their due diligence done, then knowing the pricing, knowing the area, and then getting information from the agent that you're probably not going to get. Um, I do feel there's a, a negotiation benefit even down to, you know, multiple offers. I think the buyer's agent can get a bit of preferential treatment, et cetera. So, yeah, I do think, you know, your tight budget, your difficult budget, I'm not sure why, why it makes why it's a difficult budget. I'd be really careful with getting too picky on your budget. Uh, your location. Um, we have seen many clients look for a needle in the haystack. And while they're looking for this, the market's moving and they can potentially be forced out of the market they want to buy. And then they start going to plan B. But by the time they've got to plan B, those suburbs have also gone out and they're starting to miss out in those suburbs as well. So I do think you do need a little bit of a broader brief potentially looking at some alternative So sub- because your chance of success in that suburb, you could look back in time and say, there's only been two properties in the last three years that have hit our brief. Well, that's pretty wishful thinking that one's going to come up in the next month, right? So you do need to have a, you know, a reality check potentially of how likely is is our our brief achievable. And a buyer's agent's pretty good at testing that because they could say, look, I know you like that, but I haven't seen anything that good for that price ever. And so they're very good at reframing your thinking and looking at alternative options. And so I would say that's another benefit. Look there, if you've got the 5% deposit home loan scheme as well, that's a huge benefit, not paying lenders, mortgage insurance. And, you know, that saving could also be justified why potentially you could put that into a buyer's agent. Um, And so I'd consider it that way as well. Um, But, yeah, it's all about selecting the right buyer's agent. So go for experience, go for local knowledge, um, and usually go for the smaller business rather than the bigger business, I believe, where you get that real reputational risk.
2: It's a really good point, Chris. I, I think for a first home buyer, you need a local expert or local specialist. For context, when I started out as a buyer's agent, I bought property in three suburbs on the Lower North Shore, and Surrey Hills, Paddington, Bondi Junction. If I was buying a house or a terrace. That, that was it. And even that was enough of a challenge getting familiar with all those suburbs, the streets, you know, the right types of assets, the risks. I mean, when people sort of uh, – you get some of the buyer's agents now or well, they're buying Tasmania, we buy Manduru, we buy the Gold Coast. It's like there's no way you can be a specialist in all of those markets. just not possible. Um, what you've really got there is a volume-based business. Now, investors might uh, you know, look at that type of idea, but if you're a 1st home buyer looking in a specific area, you need somebody who's a specialist in that area. Otherwise, it's self-defeating. So that's a really good point, Chris, and well-made. Um Let's crack on. Next question. We've got two more to cover. Rob H. What is a good asset, in inverted commas, in relation to property? This is one of the common clauses you've warned about, but I'd love to know how to determine this. For context, my father of two moving back to Sydney from the UK on permanent residency. I'm looking to buy my first Australian property and debating whether to buy in Sydney, Northern Beaches or the Gosford region. Uh, loving the podcast, so we'll definitely answer your question. Uh, Chris, Chris, uh, I've heard you say sort of quality asset That's one of the phrases, your sort of go-to phrases. Now, in my head, that probably means something like a high land to asset ratio, a property with some level of scarcity, value, desirability, and probably in like a landlocked area or suburb and not, you know, a new housing estate or a tower block. Uh, But what would you uh, perceive to be a quality asset?
1: It's a really big question, this one. I could probably take 15 minutes to answer it, right, Pete? Because there's a lot to it. It's not as simple as, um, yeah, just buy a house in Sydney. You know, it can't go wrong. You know, it's not just like, oh, avoid units. We just buy houses, et cetera. So generally speaking, though, um, well, absolutely, it's established property versus new property because there is already scarcity there in just that those two words, right? Um, generally speaking, I, I feel it's it's where high-income and people that are, or higher income people are either living there now or are moving there, because ultimately the price of a property is priced on who can afford it, uh, who wants to buy it and what are they earning and what wealth they've got, et cetera. So you really need to get your demographic fit and you need to get, so you need to get restricted supply, um, but also you need to get growing demand. So that's one of the issues when you look at sort of regions, for example, how fast is that local population growing versus say a capital city, et cetera. Um, so that, you know, it all comes back to that sort of the demand is by who wants to buy it, what do they earn? What can they borrow? What other money have they got? Are they looking to upgrade and use their other assets to get into this suburb? Um, and is there restricted supply? Once you get those two, um, and that could be, you're right, because it's landlocks, you know, because there's, you know, um, heritage overlays, you know, because, but even when you're in a suburb, you can get it wrong. You know, you can easily get it you know i've got the right demand in that suburb i've got the right location where they're not building anymore but then i buy on a really poor street you know i buy you know on the, the busiest road i buy on a rat run i buy a really weird block it's, it's a triangular block and everyone wants to you know because you can't really use those blocks very well or it's a corner block or it's got noise issues or it's got privacy problems or it's got really bad aspect or it's um you know the neighbors are an issues, or there's got You know, there's lots of things. There's a DA happening in the area. So even when you get to, you know, they're picking the location that has got those right fundamentals, the wrong strike to strong demand growing from, you know, higher income couples and families, I think that's what you need to hit. Uh, And it's got restricted supply and it's gentrifying. You can still absolutely buy the wrong property within that suburb by not knowing what the locals really want and, you know, making and buying basically the bottom end of the suburb. Because the issue in that is that, potentially when you buy in the market. Like sometimes you can overpay for that property. The gap between the best stuff and the poor stuff is not that big when it's like a boom. You know, that gap's really small. So you're overpaying for the poor stuff in that market. If the market turns, the poor stuff's absolutely the stuff that's more likely to sell and also the stuff that falls in value. Um, and, you know, if you look at any suburb, some streets are just constantly turning over properties. There's just people get in there. They didn't know what they didn't know when they bought in the suburb. And they go, oh, God, a bus flies down this street and it's not safe for the kids. Let's get out of here two years later. Um, and so just be wary when you're looking at a suburb. Look at the area, the streets that people are constantly turning over and it's a good indication to avoid those streets. And the problem is those, those properties are always on the market. Um, so the good stuff's very, very little on the market and then the poor streets are on the market all the time. And so it's usually a case of just waiting for those better streets, the better aspects, um, if you can, because the, you know, When you sell one day, you're always going to have competition on the poorer streets because people are always selling out of them.
2: It sounds like that could be a whole uh, episode in its own right, but hopefully, uh, Rob, that gives you some indicators or a good starting point when you're weighing up whether to go Central Coast or Northern Beaches, but it also comes down to the property level as well as the suburb level. Uh, Final question for today's Q&A from Donald Trump. Uh, that's Drump with a D. Uh, love the show. How is the household expenditure measure calculated? So the HEM or HEM as it's sometimes called. Uh, so Chris, my understanding is that's calculated based on a median spend of sort of absolute basics uh, for households. while non-basics are excluded. But I guess when you're applying for a home loan, some lenders might require an estimation of your weekly or monthly spend on things like... Um, food or transport utilities. Um, so, Chris, the, the HEM, explain that for us in plain English.
1: Look, I think the thing with um, a HEM, so where, where does this uh, come into issues when you lodge a home loan application? Um, a lot of people say, well, I'm spending X, but it doesn't really matter what you're spending too much. What a bank's going to do is say, if that X is you know, less than what the household expenditure measure is, the bank will use that because that's the absolute minimum that they need to make sure that you can afford, right? Um, Now, back in, where this was a real issue is when uh, all the loans um, pre-Royal Commission, the HEM levels were ridiculously low um, and they were really underquote. Like the basics, you know, when you think, oh, a couple living in Sydney spending... $1,500 $1,500 a month, it was just unrealistic. Hems have gone up a lot. They're now looking at income, they're looking at location, they look at whether you're a single or a couple or whether you've got kids, et cetera. So the minimum expenses a bank will look at um, is variable based on that, your situation, right? And what, Im- what important thing to note is if you lodge a loan that you say you spend less than the HEM, a bank will go through your expenses to so say, hang on a sec, you tell me you only spend two grand a month, but the minimum six. Prove it to me, and they'll go through your transactions, and they'll start questioning it, and they'll look at your actual expenses. If you lodge an application with a bank and you lodge more than the hemp, the banks don't really go through it because they say, "Look, we've we've service due." We've your declared living expenses above the hem. We're not too worried about your risk because um you got uh you know we've covered you with the the minimum etc. So that's where the the issue is, and the hems are always changing. So they've changed quite a bit recently with inflation. So the banks have updated their hem table. So if you type in hem table, you'll get a good idea of 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 what they are. Um, they do vary bank to bank slightly as well. Um, but um yeah that's that's what it is, and that's where the issue is, is that the you know, you may be surprised, you might be quite frugal and think, oh, we only spend $2,000 a month. Well, that's fine, but the bank's going to use four or $5,000 for you as a family. And um, even though you're frugal, the bank's not going to look at it like that. The other thing a bank will do is buffer your loan. So, um, you know, what they'll do is say, well, your current interest rate's 5.5%. We've got to put a 3% buffer on that. So we need to make sure you can afford the repayments if they go up to eight and a half percent as well. Um, and so that's what's really smashing people's servicing right now is the hems are much higher, but also the assessment rate that banks are having to use is massive. It's eight and a half percent, maybe nine percent, maybe nine point five percent, which is huge compared to you know, where we've had, you know, rates people have been doing assessment rates around five, five and a half percent.
2: Perfectly explained. Thank you, Chris. So, uh, Well, let's um, wrap it up there for today. I love doing these uh, Q&As because it keeps it real. These are real questions and real problems that people are facing uh, in real time. So uh, thanks everyone so much for tuning in. You can catch me on my daily blog, People Watch Blogspot or on Twitter. And don't forget, subscribe for the Rask podcast on your favorite podcast player. And you can catch us on YouTube. Uh, Chris, um, if people want to get in contact with you Blusk, where should they go for more?
1: Jump on into the show notes. There's a little link there and fill in your details. And, um, yeah, the team would love to help. It's real time of just analysis and um, just checking what you're doing right now. It's, um, it's just all about trying to get some certainty.
2: Nicely done. Thank you, everyone. Do send us your questions and we look forward to uh, seeing you next episode. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks, Pete. Cheers.